Hi there, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley. It's great to have your company once again for episode 367. Count them. One, two, three. I'll come back later. Uh, but today on the uh, program, we are going to be looking at the epic fail of Luna 25, uh, the Russian probe that uh, went to the moon and decided that it would uh, visit too quickly. Uh, we will also be talking about the reasons why there seems to be this race to the moon, because there are other um, nations up there already, uh, including India. Uh, we're also uh, going to investigate uh, a new dark energy theory. This is rather fascinating and uh, a bit close to home, too. Plenty more coming up, including some questions about the end of the world. Yep, someone wants us to list the top five things that are likely to bump us all off. Gee, thanks. Uh, there's another question about light. We had a couple last week and they continue to um, want to know more. So we'll look into that. And another uh, question from a, um, a female listener asking about Vera Rubin. We'll tackle all of that today on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, and to discuss all of that and more is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hi, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Fancy seeing you here. Yes, it's uh, an unusual place for us to meet up. <laughs> to meet, yes. Yes. In I the went, went through your fair city uh, on, uh, what day? Saturday. But, ah. Uh, why don't you, you come and help me move? Well, <laughs> we had a lot of packing to do. I was very uh, pushed for time. I was driving from Canberra to Kundabarabran for the mm. party for the 50th birthday of the UK Schmidt Telescope. Which oh, was wonderful. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, I think we did a story on it on the radio recently. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So it's 50, 50 years since it was uh, since it was inaugurated in uh, August 1973. And uh, we had a very nice time. And we're joined by some former Schmitters from overseas uh, by Zoom, so we had a good, good, a good session. Yeah, fantastic. How does it make you feel when all these things are starting to hit half centuries? <laughs> well, um, I'm considerably older than their half century, so it didn't really make me feel anything uh, different from what I'm normally feeling. Well, what can you do about it? I mean, well, you can celebrate it. That's what I mean. Mm, mm, indeed. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, we just packed and packed some more and packed. A bit more than that. Only a short time now before we make the leap. I'm glad it's only across town and not halfway across the state. Yes. Got a couple of those over my life. Yeah. But yep. Try uh, try one country to another. Oh, yeah. No, I've yeah. never done that. Don't want to do that. Unless there's a good offer on the table. Well, there might be. Yeah, that's what, that's what brought me here. Well, twi twi twice, in fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, let's get down to business and uh, we'll have a look at this uh, recent fail by um, Roscosmos, the Lunar 25 probe, which went into orbit recently, uh, decided it didn't like being in orbit and uh, went into some kind of spiral crash into the lunar surface. Do we know what went wrong yet? Uh, only marginally. Um, so uh, this is Lunar 25. Do you know when Lunar 24 oh. flew? Uh, 1976? Yeah, 76, 47 years ago. I, I read it a couple of days ago. Yeah, no, we all did, I guess. But it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's uh, 
that's how long um, it has been since uh, a, a spacecraft in this series, uh, which was formerly, of course, operated by the Soviet Union, uh, has been launched. Uh, now, uh, uh, Luna 24 was successful, but nobody can say that this one has been. Uh, well, it, maybe they should have checked the batteries on Luna 25. <laughs> That's right. They, they expired in 1978. That's <laughs> why there was a problem. Um, one other factoid that you might be interested to know uh, before I try and answer your question. Do you know um, what surprised me was how much stuff we have put on the moon? Hmm. Uh, so this crash represents the 87th mission that has landed or crashed on the moon. Is that true? It's astonishing. Yeah, it's absolutely wow. amazing. Uh, 87 of them, uh, well, 86 until the day before yesterday, now 87. Mm -hmm. um, so that's right. Uh, many of which were soft landings and successful missions, particularly the six Apollo uh, landings, uh, but uh, some of the others weren't. Some were intentional crashes, some weren't, like uh, Luna 25. So what happened? Well, uh, the best, I guess the best detail we have comes from one of the great names in uh, contemporary Space watching, and that is Jonathan McDowell, who is uh, an avid. I think he works for NASA actually, but he's an he's an avid uh, watcher of all things space, mm. um, and uh, he um, has information that uh, gives details of the orbit that the spacecraft was in before it crashed. Yeah, uh, and apparently, uh, well, this is his thinking: if it started at ninety-one by one hundred thirteen kilometers, what he means by that is a, a perilunar of 91 kilometres. In other words, its nearest point to the moon is 91 kilometres. Its furthest point is 113 kilometres. It's not far off a circular orbit, but like all orbits, it's elliptical. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, that's um, the height above the surface. Uh, and he, he goes on to say, if it was heading for 18 by 100, um, 18 uh, kilometres lowest point, 100 kilometres highest, and then it is thought that there was, um, this is, I'm not quoting him here, but it's thought that there was a 50% uh, um, excess in the braking rocket burn. That's the problem. So the, the, so what you've got to do, if you want to bring it further down, and I think they were aiming for, as, as I said, 18 to my 100 uh, kilometers, um, that needs a required burn at a, the appropriate point in the orbit. Uh, but if you incre if you have um, one and a half times that burn, uh, then it will slow it even more. And uh, the orbit that um, it was trying to go into was minus 15 kilometers by 100 kilometers. Um, in other words, it was aiming for a, a, a perilunar point below the ground surface of the moon, oh. 15 kilometers. Right. Yeah, so th yeah, that this would is, do it. <laughs> yeah, that that would do it. That's right. Uh, this is conjecture on his part. He gives some other scenarios as well, but mm. you can see that um, uh, that that's probably what happened. So we don't know why that fifty percent overburn or, or whatever it was uh, would uh, why that happened. Uh, software, perhaps. Yeah, something went wrong in the engine itself. Didn't switch off when it should have done. Um, Either way, miles instead of kilometers. Well, because <laughs> that happened once. No, nobody had do that before. No. Yeah, I think that was. Um, I think that was. Was uh, it Mars, a Venus Ma mission? Mars. No, it's Mars Climate Orbiter. I think. That's right. Yeah. Um, because there was um, there was a 
uh, <laughs> uh, after the event, there was an in investigation, uh, and it was by a body called the Mars. What was it? Uh, Mars Climate Orbiter Mission Failure Investigation Board, which is mm -hmm. MCOMFIB. Uh, and and Confib always sticks in my mind, uh, and they looked into it, and I think that was the decision, the the ultimate outcome. Some were working in kilometers, some were working in miles, uh, and I, I suspect it wasn't that because I, I think it's a long time since the Russians have used miles. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, it yes, basically uh, something clearly went wrong. Uh, apparently, the speed at which it hit the lunar surface rather than being, being a few centimetres per second was 1.68 kilometres per second. And that's oh. enough to fry anything, really. Yes. So, yes, um, uh, a sad end. Now, I, I guess what's interesting is what the Russians might do next. Uh, yeah. Because you, you have some insights into that. Do I? Well, you told me you'd read an article. I, I have. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, What I... I found it fascinating was yeah. that this particular mission was supposed to be partnered with ESA. And oh, yes, right. because of the invasion of Ukraine, that partnership was dissolved. And so Roscosmos went it alone. And you've got to yeah. wonder if maybe that partnership, if it had stuck together, might have um, might have made the difference. Who knows? Uh, they also were supposed to take a rover to the yes. moon, which they decided against at the last minute. So they didn't have the rover on board. Uh, again, you wonder, well, you know, did you change the parameters for the lack of payload or, you know, who knows? But, um, yeah. yeah, so so well, there were quite a few last-minute changes to the mission. So um, I'm, I'm wondering if they were factors in its demise. Uh, but they, um, they are still planning a Lunar 26 and Lunar 27, uh, which will carry the ExoMars rover, I'm guessing a prototype. So obviously Russia is looking towards Mars as uh, and using the moon as a stepping stone. And we've talked about that before because it's um, I think it's the South Polar region that they're, they're all aiming at because of the water and the potential for creation of rocket fuel. Yeah. Y yes, mm. oh, certainly on the moon that's the case. Um, now, ExoMars is an ESA project. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's uh, maybe that's gone belly up as well. Mm, so possibly. Uh, I mean, yeah. um, uh, the, you know, there's another um, part of that project which was Chaparelli was a lander, uh, mm. and it was originally going to be jointly with the Russians. Am I remembering this correctly? Anyway. Um, it, 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 the, the, there was a breakup in the partnership between yeah. Cosmos and and uh, ESA. Um, yeah. So they, yeah, they were also going to take other devices. Well, they they did take other devices to the moon. They just slammed them into the surface. Uh, spectrometers. Um, mm. They were going to study that, the soil. They that's were right. To, yeah. Uh, look so, for so surface water. Uh, very well equipped uh, mm. spacecraft. Um, but uh, I mean, there's been a lot of. Comparison with uh, between Luna Twenty Five and Chandrayaan Three, which is, as we speak, on its it's in orbit around the moon, yeah. uh, took a month longer to get there because they didn't have the same kind of thrust at liftoff that the uh, Russian spacecraft did launch vehicle did. Um, but um, a lot of, there's been a lot of comparison between the two. So uh, Chandrayaan uh, Three is probably a lot more like what Luna Twenty Five was planned to be. 
uh, before yeah. they before they ditched the the lander. Um, Chandrayaan will carry the Vikram lander, which has on board uh, a rover, uh, and that will hopefully uh, rove on the lunar South Pole region. Um, c- certainly, Lunar Twenty Five had more scientific instruments on board than Chandrayaan has, although it is still pretty well endowed with mass spectrometers and X-ray spectrometers and things like that. But you you may have you know your point is well made, Andrew, because if the rocket burn that was supposed to slow it down was made uh, with the incorrect uh, assumption that the spacecraft had more mass because it had a rover on board, yeah. uh, then that would do the trick. That would uh, exactly create what, what we saw. And, uh, and you, you, you know, most people will say, well, how could they make that mistake? But you've got to remember this involves hundreds of people yeah, in different yeah. departments all yeah. doing their own thing. Yeah, and it could right. be as easy as somebody forgetting to send the email. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it could be that. Yeah. Uh, we've think, got to also remember that Chandrayaan two, yes, uh, also crashed. It did. Which was that's right. Twenty nineteen. That's right. Uh, that was. Uh, so did Chandrayaan one, but that was intentional. Yeah, uh, that was crashed out of orbit, and uh, and the idea was to see. Well, you don't call it a crash then. If it was intentional, it was a hard landing. <laughs> Very hard indeed. <laughs> the, yes. um, j- the so just going back to the facts and figures, very roughly. Chandra- Chandrayaan three has twice the mass of Luna twenty five. I think Luna twenty five is something like eighteen hundred uh, eighteen hundred kilograms, and mm. Chandrayaan three is over three thousand. It's getting on for four thousand. So, um, and I guess that's because it's got a lander on board, it's got a rover on board, none of which uh, was on Luna twenty five. So yeah, it, it looks like it's a sad story of political consequences being felt down the chain in an organization that, like all space agencies, um, is genuinely trying to achieve scientific results yep. uh, by putting things down on uh, on on other worlds. And, and the, the other thing I've read is that this, this was a keystone mission for Roscosmos, mm-hmm. that they had a lot invested in this particular mission because it was going to make huge strides in their knowledge and Probably to a certain degree, their their power and control over the resources of the moon, and they they have recently announced this is a new space race. We're going there because we want what's on that um, particular yeah. sphere. They you know there's been talk about helium three, which yeah. can provide a new type of power source. Uh, everyone wants the water. Mm. Uh, there's there's a lot going on in terms of um, interest in the moon. That's right. Um- I read a piece uh, which was very illuminating about the way Roscosmos feels about this, and perhaps the Russian media generally, which of course is tightly state-controlled. Um, so the crash on the evening news on the day, uh, one of the main state news channels, TV, uh, the crash was the eighth item on the news uh, and had just a few seconds of announcement, yeah. whereas there was a four-minute uh, session further up the news. It was on something like the availability of yak meat, so I can't remember what the details <laughs> were. It was something a bit much more obscure, um, and yeah. It just shows how embarrassed they probably are. I think that's the it. word, yes. I think mm. that's right. I think it's an embarrassment. But I think the um, the general feeling in the in the 
space science world is uh, is sympathy. Uh, no one's laughing at them. This no, no, that's right. This, this has happened to everybody. Yeah, it absolutely has. Uh, it is incredibly difficult to land things on the moon, uh, mm. and the South Pole is a particularly um, you know difficult difficult region. Yeah. Um, so, because you've got to first of all, you've got to put the thing in an orbit that's virtually polar, uh, which means you sh you've got to shift the um, the inclination of the of the, the spacecraft's trajectory by ninety degrees because it's coming in more or less equatorially. So, yeah, it's um, it, it is it's a, it's a sad story. Um, well, and to reconstruct an old joke, why didn't they make it out of the same material they used to make the black box? Uh, that black stuff. <laughs> no, yeah, the black boss box in a in a, I know, in a I know, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, They've got the the, the black stuff. So what's make make, what make it out of that, and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't think they'll give up. It's probably made them take a, a an unfortunate leap backwards, but I don't think it'll be the end of uh, their attempts to to get on the moon because it is becoming a, um, a pretty obvious that there are a lot of players who want to get to Mars. Uh, yeah. China is one, Russia is another, United States is another, uh, and there'll probably be more than that. I mean, India is starting India to become too, a real big player. Yeah. Mm. Um, so watch with interest. Um, do you have any faith in the? I, I think the water theory plays well for the um, uh, creation of rocket fuel for a Mars mission. What about the helium three argument? It's um, so we, helium three is a is a sort of conjecture in a way. It's what you naturally expect when you get subatomic particles from the sun landing on a surface that's in a vacuum. Uh, and um, I think there's, I can't remember, it's a long time since I read, read up on helium-3, but I think there is, there, there is evidence that it really is there, uh, but it is probably highly diluted. It's, it's something where you've got to you know, mine 25,000 tons of it to get some tiny amount. Yeah. But the thing about helium-3 is that it is potentially a clean nuclear fuel that you could put in a reactor the size of a microwave oven and leave it on your desk because there's no uh, intense radiation Blood. coming from it mm. to, 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 you know, to, to, um, to, to speak of. Um, just one final postscript on this. Um, you know, your conjecture about what the Russians might do next. Um, some of the things I've read suggest that there might be enough bits and pieces around to build another Lunar 25, um, you know, because a lot of these things are built so that you can test out the, the prototype and and you, you might have two of everything. It's common practice to have two yeah. of everything. Uh, that would be interesting. Yeah. L so, Lunar, you know, Lunar 25A. Uh, the, what I read was 25B, but it might oh, be. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. One, yeah. one or the other. Uh, I, I think that's what happened with, um, uh, with Insight. I think Insight was a spare Phoenix... Uh, lander, uh, you know, remember Phoenix landed near the yeah. North Pole of uh, Saturn, or sorry, Mar Mars, uh, northern Arctic of Mars, and then uh, Insight landed near the equator. But I think the basic spacecraft chassis, which is called the Bus, usually, uh, I think the Bus was the same in both cases. One was yeah. a spare for the other, I think. Was wasn't Skylab Apollo eighteen? Uh, yeah, I think that's right too. Right. Yes, so, so you know, do, everybody does it. We we all do it. That's right. Mm. Yeah. It's not a bad plan, actually. Not at all. Um, we'll watch with interest. There'll be certainly more to see in the future in regard to uh, Russia's attempts to get back to the moon. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley with Professor Fred.
Let's take a quick break from the show to talk about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, they are back on board with us, and we really do appreciate their support of Space Nuts. Now, what is NordVPN? Well, it's only the best virtual private network service uh, available online, but they do more than that. And as a Space Nuts listener, you get a, a special deal if you sign up with NordVPN through the special URL, which is nordvpn.com slash space nuts when you put that url in it'll bring up a page which will offer you uh, this exclusive 30 day money back guarantee uh, with nordvpn as a space nuts listener now you can have a bit of a look around at what they offer uh, and and you can get all the information you need they have over nearly six thousand servers around the world and they are high speed servers very reliable and it does protect your online data and it is uh, the best encryption available at the moment. And it works on uh, all sorts of devices. It works on uh, iOS devices. It works on Android. It works on Windows. It works on uh, MacBooks. Uh, you name it, it will give you protection on those devices and several platforms within those devices, from Google Chrome to Firefox to uh, Microsoft Edge, etc. So you get great protection. So let's say you want to choose a plan. Click on the Choose Your Plan button, that's convenient, and it will give you the rundown on what's available in the various packages. Now, if you want to get the basic service, you can get secure high-speed VPN, malware protection, and a tracker and ad blocker, and that'll cost you a, a little bit less. But if you want to go for, say, the high end, you can get, on top of all that, the password manager, which I absolutely adore. I use that more than anything, to be honest, because uh, if you've got to remember 100 passwords, and a lot of people have that many these days, it's almost impossible. Uh, so this manages your passwords securely. Very simple to use. There's a data breach scanner. You can get a terabyte of cloud storage and uh, next generation file encryption for the, uh, the entire package. Now, if you want to take it month by month, uh, you can do that, or you can get a one-year plan or a two-year plan that brings the price down. In fact, uh, if you go with a two-year plan on the, the whole hog, it'll save you 69%, which is a pretty good saving. So uh, have a look at it today, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Have a look at what they offer, find what uh, works for you, and give it a go. Don't forget, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. That URL, again, for Space Nuts listeners is nordvpn.com slash space nuts get the deal today Three, two, one. space nuts <laughs> moving right along uh fred let's talk dark excuse me sorry about that <laughs> i didn't mute my phone <laughs> oh there you go actually did i mute my phone? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear Never mind. Um, now, let's uh, move on to dark energy. And this is a fascinating story about um, how to possibly measure it. Uh, this is a new theory. Um, when I say theory, we still don't know what it is, uh, but we know it's there because it makes up, what, 68% of the uh, known universe or something to that effect? Yeah, the, that's right, the mass energy budget, because mass yeah. and energy are equivalent. That's correct. So um, in lieu of the fact that we don't know what dark energy is, there may be a way of measuring it, and it involves our um, nearest neighbour, Andromeda. Yeah, this uh, story surprised me, and um, I uh, kind of 
read through it a few times. Um, uh, I have not yet uh, had time to look at the the, the main research paper, mm. uh, which I'm just going to bring up now, just so I can see what it looks like. Yes, it's Astrophysical Journal Letters. This is big stuff. Yep. Uh, and the uh, authors are from principally the University of Cambridge. Um, uh, the title of their research paper is Constraining Dark Energy from the Local Group Dynamics. And so local group is that group of probably 20 or so galaxies, uh, which of which the biggest three are the Milky Way galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, and something called M33, which is slightly smaller, but another lovely spiral galaxy. And the rest is sort of, sort of small stuff like the large and small Magellanic clouds and a whole lot of dwarf galaxies. So um, what they are arriving at um, is extraordinary, um, you know, logical leaps here. Um, they're arriving at looking at the way the these galaxies in the local group, and in particular the, the 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 link between the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy, which as you and I both know are on a sort of collision course. Yeah. Um, the 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 way they behave, uh, looking at them in detail uh, and to tease out evidence about dark energy. So a quick recap that you're right, absolutely right, 68% of the mass energy budget of the universe is this stuff, dark energy, which is making the universe expand ever more rapidly. Yeah. Um, we used to think the universe was probably actually collapsing rather than uh, accelerating in its, sorry, uh, slowing down rather than accelerating in its uh, its expansion. You scared me for a minute there. <laughs> Collapse is not a good word when it comes no, to universes. Not. No, sorry. I'll wipe that from my vocabulary. Uh, no more collapses. Um, <laughs> pity, really, because you use it a lot in astrophysics. Anyway, never yeah. mind. Um, the, um, the 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 expansion of the universe was found to be accelerating back in 1998. It's a well-worn story. We know that Professor Brian Schmidt here in Australia played a major role in that and collected one third of a Nobel Prize for it, which is mm. brilliant. So, um, uh, but the cause of that expansion accelerated expansion is still a mystery and it's been put down to dark energy uh, which is a nice term for something with no idea what it is but we do know a little bit more about it now um, by very careful observations of galaxies and supernovae in the distant universe so the distant universe has a big part to play in this we believe that it is uh, whatever it is it's always been there and it doesn't change with time uh, and it mimics something that Einstein called the cosmological constant, which is why you see that referred to a lot in dark energy uh, yeah. articles. Um, and what it's saying is that if you've got a lump of space, it has its own energy. If that space gets bigger, so does its energy. The energy is absolutely uh, linked to the volume of space you're talking about, rather than starting off with a lump of space that has no energy and then the energy comes along later. Uh, that's not what we think happened. We think that uh, because it mimics the the dynamics, mimic the cosmological constant effect. You uh, what you've got is something where you you one one kilogram of space has a kilogram of dark energy, and you know, uh, or whatever it is. Anyway, the uh, the interesting slant on this new article is that. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking deep into the universe 
to get the handle that we have on dark energy. And when you're looking deep into the universe, you are by definition looking at very faint objects. Mm. And that means the measurements are very hard and the parameters that you get, particularly things like velocities or redshifts as they really are for that, are a bit, you know, a bit flaky. They're, they've got quite high error bars. They're not as precise as you'd like them to be. So what these scientists are saying is, well, uh, our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are likewise being uh, attempting to be pushed apart because space itself is expanding uh, by dark energy. That's that's part and parcel of, of what they have to do. Um, why don't we look precisely at the, at the velocities of these objects uh, and exactly how they're behaving to see mm. if we can tease out something about dark energy? And I should just add, uh, because... Otherwise, we'll get lots of listener questions. Uh, yes, the space between ourselves and the Andromeda galaxy is expanding, but the Andromeda galaxy is coming towards us because it's actually moving through space. Uh, space is trying to carry it away, but its, it's velocity towards us is, is great. Yeah, so that should nullify the question. Hang on, hang on. How could it be uh, yeah. getting closer yeah. if it's, space is expanding? Uh, they're the two one. totally different things. That's right, yes. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. uh, yeah, so it's, um, uh, it, it is... Very interesting. Uh, the, the scientists are actually, um, I think, in uh, applied mathematics departments rather than astronomy departments, which means that um, this paper probably has a lot of very hard mathematics in it. I haven't oh, looked yeah. at the paper yet. I've only seen the abstract. Uh, yes, uh, the first author is Dr. David Benesty from the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics in the University of Cambridge. And so that's, yes, that's the bottom line, um, hmm. trying to uh, check out the behavior of dark energy from the measurable behavior of two galaxies, one of which we're sitting in and the other of which is our nearest na large neighbor galaxy. So what they're basically saying is if we analyze our own environment and, and look at uh, what's happening with the uh, merger of the, the two hmm. galaxies, we may be able to learn more about dark energy as a consequence of that because of the, uh, yes. the nature of this thing that we, we can't even define. The name's all wrong, we know that, yeah. uh, but it, um, it, it, we, we don't know what it is. We just know it's there. Um, we've known for, I don't know, nearly 40 years, I suppose, that it's there. Uh, and it answers a lot of questions as to why things are happening and how they're happening. I, I think I, I know a lot of people struggle to get their heads around this and, and I'm one of them. In fact, I'm probably bottom of the class when it comes to explaining these things. But um, dark energy, um, gravity back. pulls things together and dark energy pushes things apart. Is that how it's described? So let's just uh, go back through that one, Andrew. I lost you completely there. Oh, okay. Uh, you um, You dropped out. So you were you're about to say um, something? Yeah, no, it's uh, one of the, one of the things we know about that. Oh, well, you, is it, yeah, we we can't define it because we we don't know exactly yes. what it is. In fact, yep. we've got the name wrong. Yeah, it should be in poorly describes what we're just, what what we're defining and puts people in the wrong frame of mind straight away. But the other thing is, um, I, I think I read that uh, that. A good descriptor of uh, dark energy is it's 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 almost the opposite to gravity. Gravity brings things together, 
dark energy pushes things apart. Is that fair? It it is in in one way it's fair. In exactly as you've said, it pushes things apart. Where it differs from gravity, Andrew, is that it's everywhere. Gravity is the only way you've got matter. Uh, mm. Dark energy, you don't need anything. It's still there. <laughs> That's because it doesn't matter. Boom, boom. Um, I wish it didn't. <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah, but, but, but unfortunately, it does, given yeah. how much of it uh, makes up yeah. the known universe. Yes, indeed. Mm. Um, so, yes, it's... Uh, it, it, look, uh, I, I think this is work of the kind where you're looking at the potential for a new technique to give you answers about uh, the nature of dark energy. I mean, what it's done so far, I think, is put upper bounds on the extent to which dark energy uh, exists. You know, it actually just sets limits. Uh, yeah. And that's a start. That's always a start in science to have limits on what the range of a parameter can, can be that you're trying to follow. And the James Webb Telescope is uh, going to be really... Uh, focused heavily on this, and um, they're going to be able to measure Andromeda's mass and motion. Yes, um, which right. may may, as you mentioned, those upper boundaries um, may help uh, understand those more, and perhaps come up with numbers that we can understand. Uh, but that new ESA telescope that they've put up there uh, is also going to maybe try and solve this one as well. Uh, I think it's going to be focused on dark matter too. Is it? Uh, yes, that's Euclid. Yes, uh, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as as is quite often the case with uh, stories we tell, we we just leave people hanging because <laughs> there's no answer. <laughs> it would be not, well, it, the, the answer is probably forty two. Yeah, but that would know, be it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So we can at least you know maybe we can put an upper bound on that and say well it's not forty three. No. <laughs> But I'm, I'm guaranteeing that we'll get questions about this from uh, all and sundry because whenever we talk about this, yeah, uh, and and because we can't adequately answer the question, nobody can. Uh, it prompts all sorts of theories. I, lo I love what, the way people think when they so come through with ideas about how this could be and what it might be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I I, um, I am looking forward to that because I know it will spawn some, uh, some questions. That, <laughs> That's good. At the moment, they're they're looking at uh, ways of trying to measure uh, what's going on uh, via the mass and motion of Andromeda. Would that be a fair? Yes. Sort of, you know, draw a line under it that, there. That's, for now. No, that's absolutely right. And you you might want to point to um, the article I sent you for our listeners as well, just so that um, it was on Space Daily. Yes, indeed. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Yes, indeed. Now, Fred, let's uh, go to some audience questions. And the first one uh, is um, pretty bleak and dark, and you know, make, it's going to make us all feel real good. Uh, this one, this one comes from Nigel. Hi, space nuts around the world. Hi, Fred and Andrew. This is Nigel from Brisbane in Australia. It's the end of the world, or so I've been told. Over the years, I've heard of different ways that the universe will wipe out life on Earth. The most common one is when the sun will expand and cook the Earth. Some of the other ones are, but I'm not sure about, uh, another star will come into our solar system and we'll get hit with an energy burst from the pole of a 
supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy. I'm kind of curious if there's an asteroid that's due to hit uh, the Earth at a later date. Anyway, friend, here's my question in two parts. One, can you give us a top five ways that the Earth will come to an end at the hands of the universe? And part two is, can you give us a time frame on each? I'm curious to know which one is going to come first. Love the show. Keep it up. Um, thank you and see you later. Uh, thank you, uh, Nigel. Uh, very um, dark question, but uh, also fascinating. Um, yeah, the end of the world. I, I suppose uh, we've been speculating about that since science fiction started being written. And, uh, yeah, there are so many. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I, could think of three or four, but five, yeah, I don't know, five? Um, I, I think the most likely end of the world scenario, as far as human beings are concerned, is we'll probably destroy ourselves. Um, whether that be through nuclear means or what, but um, that won't destroy the planet. But it will destroy us. That that to me is is a very likely scenario, given how we've been with each other for thousands of years. Um, yeah, asteroid. Although there's nothing on the horizon, is there? Um, the sun will eventually reach an age where it can't cope anymore and gets fat and old and <laughs> destroys us. Um, but let me throw one out there, Fred. Artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's um, another. Now, N Nigel. Did specify uh, the end of the world at the hands of the at the hand of the universe. So um, yeah, so it means you know destroying ourselves of the planet of, itself. Well, no, I don't think he means that. I, I think he right. still means wiping out humanity, but by some uh, cosmic cause rather than yeah. us doing it. Which I think you're right is a potential, definitely a you know it's definitely a, a doomsday scenario that we could mm. effectively wipe ourselves out but what what would happen would be effectively the planet would become unlivable because there'd be yeah. so much stuff in the atmosphere the nuclear winter and a lot of um, radioactive isotopes spread around in dust it would be a yeah pretty nasty kind of scenario mm. um the um one that's it's it's a kind of on the edge of being a natural one and um and a terrestrial one or a cosmic one is um, a runaway virus. Um, and we've seen what runaway viruses can do uh, yeah. in the in recent years. I used to write about this as a potential end to humankind uh, before COVID came along. Uh, yeah. And it definitely illustrated the veracity of, uh, you know, what, what we were saying that, yep, um, that's a, potential end for humankind is uh, if you have something that wipes out everybody, you're in big trouble. Um, then uh, you're right, absolutely right. I think that the number one would be an asteroid impact. Uh, it's certainly not going to destroy the planet, but it doesn't take much of an asteroid impact to make the atmosphere unlivable again. Yeah. Uh, certainly something the size of the uh, uh, Chicxulub event back in 66 million years BC, uh, well, BCE as it is now, before the common era. Um, that was about 15 kilometers across. Uh, it's not much. Certainly, as far the Earth doesn't even notice that as a planet. No. You know, now maybe a slight glitch in the position of the polar of the rotation axis at the North Pole, but only by a few centimeters. 
Um, so yes, that's uh, but definitely for humankind, really bad news. Um, so we've got three there. Um, supernova. Yes, a supernova was where I was heading next. Uh, if there is a star uh, that, I mean, we're pretty sure that there aren't any supernova progenitors anywhere in our neighbourhood. Uh, we talk about ones like Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, uh, five hundred light years away or thereabouts, uh, or Eta Carina, which is eight thousand light years away. These are um, their effect. Well, it's probably not benign. It's not um, you know planet killing. Uh, effect. Um, so uh, the the other one, I guess Nigel's right in um, thinking about you know if you've got beamed radiation which does come from the poles of black holes, and it's in our direction, uh, that could be problematic. It may be you know the galaxy, our galaxy, the black hole at the centre of our galaxy is pretty benign at the moment. Yeah. Um, if um, if it woke up and started chewing up a lot of stuff. Uh, then that could start spraying out a lot of radiation, which might not be very pleasant. Gee whiz, that's yeah. nice to know. Uh, then could there's... something come in from outside of our yeah. solar system and, and sort of sweep away our protection, protect, uh, protective cocoon? Well, um, so Nigel mentions a star straying into the solar system. There's certainly nothing at all on our horizon that would fit that bill. Um, not even brown dwarfs, which are quite hard to to observe, uh, because you know all the ones we can see, you can measure what their velocity is, and they're they're just standard velocities. But mm. yeah, maybe an interstellar asteroid. Um, I don't know that it would be any more dangerous than a, a a solar system asteroid strike. They are going faster; it could be going at sixty kilometers per second, and that means it releases a huge lot more energy uh, on the Earth when it hits it. Even your favourite space object, Oumuamua, uh, had it hit the Earth. <laughs> um, it would, uh, what was that, 400 metres or something long, um, or in diameter, depending on what shape you think it is. That's going to do some serious damage. So, And uh, that came out of nowhere. That was one that we didn't see coming. Well, we didn't see it till it had gone past. Past, yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah, that's scary. Mm. Um, so Nigel, uh, all sorts of possibilities, uh, but none that we are aware of at the moment, especially with the asteroid question. I don't think there's anything within a hundred years, is there? That's right. No, not Mm. within that. PHA is potentially hazardous asteroids of which there are um, some thousand known now. Uh, I think it's about two or 3000, if I remember rightly, uh, non- non on a collision course within the next hundred years. That's good news. You can take a breath, Nigel. <laughs> For a hundred years, anyway. For a hundred years, it's all good. <laughs> but uh, no, great question. Uh, we love speculating from yeah. time to time, and it's yeah. nice to get a what if question. So thank you for that. Uh, let's move on to our next question uh, from Noah. Hi, Fred. Hi, Andrew. It's Noah calling from Eureka, California. We are at land at the pointy end of the Cascadian subduction zone, close to the other side of the globe from you guys. So my question is a two-parter with a bonus question, and it has to do with light. So I'm a mechanic, and sometimes to trace the source of a fluid leak, I'll add a special dye to the engine or transmission or air conditioner. Then, using a UV lamp and yellow glasses, I illuminate the area with the leak with UV light. 
The dye I added glows eerily and stands out visually, enabling me to trace the source of the leak easily. So part A of my question is this. How can I see the UV dye through my yellow goggles if my eye cannot process UV radiation? What am I actually seeing? Is the spectrum shifted downwards somehow? Part B of my question is, is this how UV-sensitive telescopes and craft like Maven work? And here's the bonus question. Why does the light appear spooky yellow or green or red, depending on the dye that I'm using, if the UV is on the violet end of the spectrum? Shouldn't the dye look violet? Thanks, guys. I tend to think of a lot of weird stuff like this at work, and this one has been puzzling me for a while. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Noah. Wow. Um, <laughs> so he uses a, a dye to trace a leak in an engine, and uh, I'm get, gathering he wears goggles to look at where the dye has traveled, but he's uh, he's wondering how that works when you're not supposed to be able to see UV. So what's <laughs> Um So uh, just just remind me, Andrew. Um, so uh, Noah uses a UV light source. Is that right? To, uh, to yeah, I, I guess eyes. he uses those uh, night vision goggles. Would they no, use the UV? Light, the no, light, that would use the light source itself. Ah, uh, that yeah. No, it's, it's all right. It, it, I, I just wanted to check. So okay. what what I think is happening is. Uh, you've got a, a leak and you want to check that the fluid you poured in at one end is coming out the other. Our plumber does it, the same thing, actually. Right. Uh, it's how he worked out where our storm drains come out. Okay. <laughs> uh, because of a fluorescent dye. Uh, mm. Except it's probably not quite as high tech as what Noah's using. But um, if you... So certain materials... Um, when you, I think I've lost you again. Oh, I got you back. I'll let me repeat that. Certain materials, when are uh, when they're illuminated by ultraviolet light, the uh, ultraviolet light is high energy light, and so it excites them uh, to fluoresce, and so they fluoresce, uh, they glow brightly by uh, this process, which is a in a completely different waveband. And yes, often it's yellow, yellowish. And mm. so what you're seeing there is uh, uh, some sort of molecule that gets kicked by an ultraviolet photon and that it puts it in an excited state. And then when it relaxes again, it emits a visible light photon, uh, uh. which is fluorescent. So um, it's how, uh, and in fact, that process is used a lot in technology. Um, it's how when the first charge couple devices, which are the image sensors that are related to what's in your phone and your camera. When we started using those in astronomy, they were only red sensitive. Um, but to make them blue sensitive, what we did was coat them with a fluorescent material so that uh, when ultraviolet or blue light hits it, uh, that material fluoresces and the chip itself, the silica chip, uh, is is sensitive to red light, so it picks up what that that fluorescence, and so what you've got is a kind of proxy way of measuring the ultraviolet light, uh, and it's extremely, you know, it worked very very well. Um, so coated CCDs coated by some sort of fluorescent material were very much the way of doing things 
when I started off in this sort of technology back in the 80s. So you, you may have answered part C of his question in answering part A because he was wondering why he sees this um, this fluid in yellow, green and red when he thinks it yeah. should be violet, but it's possibly no, because of that process yeah, you were cause, explaining. Because the, the, the photons are being re-emitted at different mm. frequencies, yeah. Okay. Glad we bumped off two parts in one yeah. go. There was, there was another, wasn't there a, a gift? Uh, yeah, he was asking about, um, is this the way UV telescopes work? Uh, well, yeah, in that regard, uh, as I've just said, yes, it is. That's how a, a UV sensor might work. These days, there are there are better ways of doing it. You actually back illuminate the CCD. You make it thin enough on its substrate that uh, you can illuminate it from behind, and that improves the ultraviolet sensitivity. Uh, mm. So, um, yeah, it's uh, that's basically... How, how, one way of doing it to have a fluorescent coating, and the other way is to thin them. What we call thin, thin CCDs. There you go, Noah. It's all about excitement. Yes, it is. Just At like molecular space, level space nuts, isn't? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Thanks for the question. Um, really interesting. Uh, yeah, my my brain works the same way as yours, Noah. I, I find when I'm doing things, I just my brain just goes somewhere and starts asking, "How does that work? Or why is that happening? Or why did I get out of bed this morning? It just um, all sorts of. I'm always sort of trying to. My brain won't stop. It just never, never stops. I often wake up at three or four in the morning and can't get back to sleep because I need to figure something out. It's mm. bizarre. Don't like it much sometimes. <laughs> Thanks, Noah. And one final question from Anne. Hello, this is Anne from Bellevue, Washington. I have a question for Women Astronomer Day. Can you explain Vera Rubin's contribution to the discovery of dark matter? Thank you very much. I appreciate your podcast. Thank you, Anne. Lovely to hear from you. And uh, we have spoken of Vera Rubin, Rubin in the past. Of course, the Vera Rubin telescope is um, at the forefront at the moment, uh, or will be soon. Uh, but yeah, it's a good question. It's great. And Vera is one of the most noteworthy American astronomers of all time. And mm. she she uh, has a, ha, an extraordinary life story. She was keen on astronomy as a girl. I think she built her own telescope when she was still just a youngster. I can't remember where she grew up, sadly. Uh, but um, the um, and then went for an astronomical career, fiercely uh, dependent of, of uh, women's rights uh, in places like observatories, which were highly male-dominated. Yeah. Uh, there is a story that might be apocryphal, but I like it very much, um, about one observatory that she went to, uh, one telescope she went to, where there were no uh, facilities, toilet facilities for for, for women. Mm. Um, and so she took over the gents and where there had been a, a, a you know, the usual sign for uh, the male toilet is a sort of figure. She put a triangle on it to give it a dress. So that it was uh, it was the uh, standard sign for a female, uh, and you know a great champion of women in astronomy and fantastic stuff. Um, she she uh, actually she she um, won my heart uh, back in probably two thousand and four because she wrote a really nice review of uh, Stargazer, my first proper book um, about the history of the telescope. It was in Science Magazine. She said some very kind things about it, so I, I was always. Very, very fond of Vera in that regard. Um, anyway, um, her contribution to dark matter is one that, uh, once again, it's um, 
it, it's uh, you know really quite subtle because the dark matter was really known about back in 1933 when uh, Fritz Vicky, a Swiss-American astronomer, realized that uh, cluster, a cluster of galaxies he was looking at, what's called the Coma Cluster, it's in Coma Berenices, a northern hemisphere constellation, that cluster uh, had galaxies in it that were moving too fast to be part of the cluster. They should have just flown away gazillions of years ago. Uh, and so he said that, you know, the um, the material that he could see and detect was not enough to hold the cluster together uh, and therefore suspected that some kind of dark matter existed within the cluster, which was unknown. And the astronomy world at the time basically ignored it because it was just too hard. To, you know, yeah. what does that mean? Uh, but it was when Vera did uh, measures of the rotation of galaxies uh, in the 1970s, particularly um, galaxies like the Andromeda galaxy, which is near enough that you can, uh, you can't quite look at, or you couldn't then look at individual stars in it, but you could uh, take spectra, rainbow spectra, to to measure the velocity. Andromeda's almost edge on to us. It's yeah. tilted, but almost edge on. And so you've got, because we can measure very accurately what we call the radial velocity, the line of side velocity, since it's rotating and it's almost edge on, you get really good measures of those velocities on either side of the center of the galaxy. And she extended it, not just using stars, but also using um, clouds of gas with radio telescopes. And what she realized was that the, the way the uh, galaxy was rotating, uh, the, it must be enveloped in a cocoon of something uh, that was allowing it not to fall to pieces uh, mm. because the, um, the, the velocities, rather than uh, behaving as they would have done if all you could see was all that there was, uh, they were behaving in quite a different way. It's what's called a flat rotation curve. Uh, so uh, that was the big breakthrough, and at last people started taking note of it. In 1978, uh, she and one of her colleagues who built the instrument that they used to make these measurements mm -hmm. um, scored a major hit with a paper. And sadly, uh, we lost her, if I remember rightly, it was Christmas Day 2016 when Vera died. Yeah, that was a, um, a sad thing because uh, she was such a pioneer and, mm -hmm. and achieved so much. She was born in Philadelphia, by the way, and lived okay. uh, yep. in Washington, D.C. Yep, yep. So up in that northeast yes, northern part of the United States. But, um, yeah, um, I'm glad the question came in, Anne. Thank you so much for... Uh, doing that we we do like to uh, hear from our female listeners but we also like to uh, uh share some of the, the the great successes by uh female astronomers and space scientists and um there are starting to be uh, more and more of them now uh, some of those big barriers have been broken down and vera rubin one of the uh one of the people that made that possible i think mm -hmm. Uh, thanks, Anne. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, thanks to everyone who contributed. And uh, a reminder again, if you do have questions for us, you can send them through via our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and just click on the AMA link at the top or the send us your voice message on the right-hand side. Uh, you can use any device with a microphone. Use one of these, an it pad, or one of these, an it phone, or um, anything that's got a microphone. Uh, you can send us a, a voice yeah. message. Um, you can nope. write it down on a piece of paper and scan it and send it through to us as well. That's okay. 
All our contact details are on the website. And have a look around while you're there. There might uh, there might actually be a Space Nuts shop on our website, which um, you can you can buy little goodies, get yourself a sticker or a cap or a shirt or a hoodie. Uh, next time you're robbing a bank, you might think of us. Uh, now, <laughs> dear, dear, where'd that come from? Uh, let's um, wrap it up, Fred. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Andrew. <laughs> As always, um, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, just I'm just trying to imagine whether any of our listeners might be bank robbers. It's not something that's ever occurred to me before. Well, if they do and they're wearing a Space Nuts hoodie, that's probably going to be a, <laughs> yeah. you know, it'll narrow down the suspects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Will. <laughs> mm. Okay. Uh, thanks, Fred. We'll catch you real soon. Sounds great. Take care. All right. Andrew. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and thanks to Hugh in the studio for um, for just being him. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, we'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.